So yeah, we're gonna see some stuff. Pink princess <laughs> crown. That's a teddy bear. <laughs> All right, so do you practice your Wu-Tang lyrics? Yeah, yeah, that's okay. the thing. After, yeah, did you get the memo? Good. That's just the secret cue, and then we go. Yeah. <laughs> Freestyle rap, actually. Tell me about the Wu-Tang Clan. Yeah. <laughs> I love how Ian says Wu-Tang Clan. <laughs> it looks like you're posing for some kind of still life drawing or something. It could well be the case. Like, three guys sitting at a table, socially distant from each other, connecting mentally. Now these make sense. <laughs> How are we with the, do, do we beep out certain parts of your sentence if you use a word which is not, not, not appropriate? No, this is the internet. Okay, so it's all out there. It's all out there, <laughs> yeah. yeah. There's no beeping. Except for TOC, that gets beeped. Yeah, yeah, you say TOC, that will get beeped. Then you're actually fired. <laughs> yeah. Well, welcome to the Ocean Cleanup's new podcast show, Catching Up. I'm joined with Hank Van Dalen and Ian Smith. Ian, what is your role here at the Ocean Cleanup? I am a uh, senior engineer in the River team. Uh, I'm, so I've been working on the interceptor development and the future development of technologies to take plastic out of rivers. And Hank? Uh, I'm Director Ocean, as we call it here, but uh, basically uh, together with the team uh, working towards uh, cleaning up the oceans. In essence, that means we have an R&D department, engineering department and an operations division. And I oversee that that's all uh, interlinked and that we work towards our objectives, but also look forward to the scale up operations we have ahead of us. And I'm Dan Vanderkoy, and I am the senior video producer here, and our job is to tell the story of the ocean cleanup. Well, thank you for sitting with me today, and let's just start with uh, what is happening right now. We're back in the office. Things are, we're slowly starting to trickle back in. How does it feel for you, Hank? It's great to be back. I think uh, that the time at home has its benefits, uh, and, but it also has the part where you start to realize that we are social animals and that our team is great in working together when we're also together. So we're now coming back to the office once a week and just seeing everybody and having that interaction and also the creativity that comes with that, that that's great. So uh, good times. And you both are healthy and you both survived it okay, family, friends, everybody? Relatively okay. We had some impact in the family of my wife, uh, which is home hard. But uh, um, other than that, my family and myself were in good health. Good. And Ian, you? Yep. All the, I got through the uh, lockdown pretty smoothly. Everything went well. Even I think I'm still getting along with my flatmates, but we'll see what they say about me behind my back. And, and Hank, the coronavirus kind of kicked in towards the end of you, you were on a holiday, right? Yeah. And so you kind of had an extended sort of mental, tell me, first of all, tell me what your holiday was and how this all kind of fell into line. So, so uh, me and my family, we decided to have a sabbatical. We did that at the end of last year. So uh, just before the Christmas, we took off. And we went to Australia on a long uh, camper van trip along the coast there, did that for two months. Uh, and that was all fine. There was no COVID going on over there then. But we had a stopover in Singapore for a few days and then we flew back. And that was just the period that it was picking up in, in Singapore. So uh, we, we, we followed the restrictions, the guidelines over there, and then we were all okay with that. But when we got back, that was the moment that the ocean cleanup said, well, COVID's also coming here, so you have to go in a, a personal quarantine. It was difficult for me in the beginning to really get back into it because the thing definitely in the ocean team, we're now in the technology development phase. And there's so much going on, like if you walk around here, you hear people talk, you pick that up, you go, okay, and now you have to kind of catch up by either calling people or reading stuff, and it just doesn't go so quick. 
Um, so I think that whole catching up phase took a bit longer. Um, but, but having said that, I think what we did quite quickly as the Ocean team is, is, is when, when the COVID kind of happened, um, um, my big concern was that we have, we have quite an international team. And they were stuck in the Netherlands, but they had, for example, parents in Italy or family members in France or in the UK. Um, but also themselves, they needed to make the decision, like, I can still travel now. Do I want to go back to my home country or do I want to stay here? So in the beginning, we really said, Let, let's focus on the personal aspects of the team. Like, sure, we're all checking in with each other and that we're actually doing okay. Because we can talk about work, but if your mind is all over the shop, then, that, then that's not going to work. So in the beginning, it was all uh, very much about, you know, how are you doing as a person? What's keeping you busy? How can we help you? Uh, and I think that took a lot of time to kind of settle in with the team. So we took about a few weeks to get that all rolling. Uh, but once they were all, we were all, call it, acquainted with the situation, we all knew, you know, who's doing well, who, who kind of needs a bit more uh, attention or support. Then that allowed me quickly to go over a bit more into the, 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 call it the work aspect in detail. And then it went quite quickly thereafter. But there was definitely some, some adaption at the beginning. I gained a, a, an appreciation for Delft and for walking around and for just kind of, you know, not necessarily meditation, but like, you know, taking that personal time and walking around and like really thinking about things. Is there something that you picked up on personally during this time? Um, yeah, for, for me, I've always, uh, the, the one thing I noticed here, I'm often uh, a lot in meetings or discussions, so you're kind of walking around the whole time, but when you're at home, you, you can always stick to a desk. So the one thing I found very important is to make sure I move throughout the whole day. So I, uh, I lay down and work, I sit down, I stand, I walk. But one of the things I actually did quite a bit was realize the fact that you can have a phone call, but it's actually even nicer if you have the phone call whilst you're walking outside and, and you know, you, 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 your thoughts are not so much restricted to the small space you're in. So that was definitely one takeaway. And, and another stuff I've been working quite a bit was with breath work. Like I find it very peaceful to, to zoom into your breath and but also use it as an internal workout. So also start doing a bit of exercises with that with the team as well. But I, I noticed if you do that throughout the day, it, it really influences the way you feel. And you know, it can get you up if you're a bit low on energy. But if you're also a bit in a stressful situation or had a, something that was quite a big impact, you can use it to calm your, uh, yourself down again. So that was some, some cool stuff to do during that period. So now, Ian, we take this time and, and we go forward. What does this look like for you? I think, um, yeah, I, I think it can be a really positive thing. And I think that's what everyone's been looking from the situation from the start. We've, uh, there's been, in terms of technology development and the engineering team, we've managed to really continue through this uh, tough time. So we've got a lot of projects going on around the world. Uh, we work with a lot of partners. Uh, we've had the challenge of communicating them throughout the lockdown and still seeing technology being pushed forward, learning how to do things remotely, learning to implement and uh, do operations without being there, which is really good for the, for the team for efficiencies for the future. And in other areas of the River team, uh, people have had the chance to really look at the fundamental processes behind things and say, okay, how can we make this even better in the future? How can we get systems in the water? How can we get the, the stuff behind the scenes going smoother? So I can see that it could uh, really turn into a positive. With, with this virus happening globally in the way that it did and with the, you know, it affecting so many people, like one thing, when I say I walk around Delft, I've noticed even in Delft, it's amazing, like I walk around and like every day I'm seeing a mask on the ground or by the river or rubber gloves being thrown, you know, in the middle of a park. How do you think that this will affect the plastic pollution problem going forward? 
Yeah, I think I think this is is worrying. To be honest, if you look at the, the, of course, we need to take the mitigations and measures against COVID, but a lot of it's related again to, to kind of single-use plastic. Uh, you know, if you use it once and throw it away, that that's not a very uh, circular way of using stuff. Uh, but also, the, the amount is going to increase. Um, and there's also been studies now that not only next to the stuff we use, but we also see the, the economical impact it's going to have, that, that companies are now really looking at their, their balance sheet and saying, okay, how can I uh, produce uh, cheaper or more efficient? And recycling is not necessarily always the cheapest way to do things. So what you're going to see is then, then if it's cheaper to manufacture something from scratch rather than recycle it, that, that pile of pollution is going to grow. And then, yeah, what happens to that waste stream, uh, we don't always know. Eh? Like, like we're now in, an, in a Western country, maybe it's a bit more controlled, but this, this is a global thing and, and yeah, it could spiral quite out of control. So I think that that's a big concern. And, and also, if you look at, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the problem of plastic growing, we have the COVID uh, challenges ahead of us. We have the economic problem growing. So... Um, yeah, if you look at it like that, it's it's pretty intense. But um, no, it's it's not a good development to see this in relation to what we're trying to achieve. So how how much more drive does that give you on the river side, Ian? Like in terms of knowing that you know in the river, like because it's connected to land, whereas in in the you know the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, yes, it all ends up there. But we don't humans don't see it necessarily. The average person with their own eyes. But we walk along rivers and we see the masks, we see the rubber gloves. How much more of a drive do you think that's going to give the river team? Yeah, I think everyone is super motivated already at solving this problem. And when you see it get worse, you just want to solve it even more. And hopefully it can also bring in an external viewpoint as well. So the more other people outside of the organization realize, hang on a minute, there is a bit of a, there's an issue here, the more impact we can have in the long run as well. So. Uh, it's a, it could be a, a negative impact that brings more attention to the issue as well. But internally, we're, we're still, we really want to address the problem. And I think it, can, um, it only makes people more motivated to, to get solutions that work. And we, hit, we take on this problem with continuous improvement and iterative design. Explain what that means to the average person. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, maybe bringing it back one step, I think it, we, we often say this, but, but understanding it is, 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 is almost a second. So we're trying to clean up the ocean, but there's, there's no reference point. We cannot look at a project next to us and say, oh, they've done it, let's copy, paste and improve. So the one thing we have to do is, is make sure we fill our blank sheet of ideas with ideas and then start testing them and getting feedback and putting that feedback into better learnings and moving forward. Um, so when we talk about that iterative design that we have is we have over the years, of course, gained a lot of knowledge. So we're past that blank sheet. We definitely have a good solid base of, of where we're heading. Um, but still, every time we look at something new or a design improvement, we always want to say, OK, let's let's first engineer it, but also make sure that we, we, we test our hypothesis, not only on paper, but probably also physically and then feed that loop back into the, our, our working. So when we talk about iteration, it's really making sure that we try something, okay, the, the result is either good or bad, that doesn't matter, information comes from it, and we feed that back into our thinking and then continuously improve on the way forward. But how much of an advantage do we have to be able to do that? I mean, you know, it is, it is something that a lot of companies or organizations don't have the ability to go into the field and learn as you go. But yet that's an important aspect of our organization. Like how cool is that for you? 
No, it's cool and it's essential for what we're trying to do. Like I think if you look on the other side where you say, okay, for example, there's a client, they give you a budget hours, a fixed time frame, and then they say, make it happen. You're always going to be restricted in what you're trying to achieve. Now, the ocean cleanup, we definitely have the ambition to, to clean the ocean up. So that urgency is there. But we're also saying we want to do it correctly and, and also with a sustainable eye to the future. And therefore, we're becoming our own client. And, and because we're so passionate about what we do and we really want this to succeed, it's actually the case that, that, that helps us to challenge ourselves to make sure we get there in the best way possible. So I, I think the way we are doing it is good. We're challenging ourselves quite well. Uh, yet, on the other hand, it's also good that we don't get too lost in what we're thinking ourselves. So also make sure we involve suppliers, partners to check what we think if that's actually the case. So there, there's that mix that we're doing, which, which is good, I would say. And taking this continuous you know, learning that we're doing from the field, you've spent a lot of time on the interceptors, and that's where you've kind of come up with the, obviously, the design going forward. Tell me a little bit about what the future is like for the interceptors without giving away anything specifically yeah so i think um and <laughs> i'm going to tell you all the secrets now yeah. now so similar to what hang was saying um i think the the opportunity our team has had to be involved in the whole process is so valuable we've uh we've been around from the designing this thing from blank sheet of paper working with a lot of partners to make that possible but then the same team we have in the office here has also uh, assembled the system, spent weeks on the yard putting this thing together, understanding where the, the tough parts are, where it's hard, and seeing where we can make that better in the future. Then the same team was also involved in the installation, the setting it up, some of the operation parts. So we've got all of the, the knowledge of what's good and what's bad. And uh, a surprising amount is what's bad about the machine of what we can improve going forward. So if you look at the, um, the, the, the interceptors we have in the, in the water at the moment, we, and if you look at what we've done, we've made conveyor belts bigger, we've made the whole system bigger, we've increased the storage. And that's a theme that you can see continuing in the future because we see huge benefits of that. And also what I mentioned about the assembly in, in the yard, that was hard work. Um, it's not necessarily suited to some of the yards without specific equipment. You need a lot of different tools. Um, if we can make that simpler, if we can reduce the complexity and reduce the time it takes, we'll be on to a real winner for the scale-up of these systems across the globe. But I think it's, it's very important, like what you said, like for me, experiencing you on the yard was great because here you are the guy that's kind of, you know, the doing this, doing, you know, the design and, and the back end stuff, but you're also being able to be hands on on the yard working with the, the, the people building it. What, what is something that you took from that experience that, that helps you now as you design the next generation? I think the, um, yeah, just being involved in all of the steps in the process is something that's easy to ignore when you're focused on just plastic capture. If you're just focusing on getting stuff out of the water, maybe you forget that someone's got to build this thing. So having experienced uh, tightening 800 bolts three times to make sure they were at the correct uh, level of tightness, that's something you remember. <laughs> and uh, that's something that you can build forwards into the next designs to make things simpler, to reduce the reliance on special tools, to, to reduce the number of components required while still meeting the other functions. It's, uh, it definitely helps you in the, in the design. And I think adding to that, you've also got the um, operating on a river. Like there is, it's a, it's a weird experience standing on one of these interceptors in the water. 
these rivers are really bad and it's i think everyone who spent time on them is surprised about how bad they are you there's a weird sense of uh, disappointment when you watch stuff uh, that isn't caught by the interceptor on the areas of the river that's not covered and you you get that extra motivation to think ah, how can we improve this so that we can catch the extra bit of plastic um, it really helps as well and also just a hatred of uh, things like plastic bags, water hyacinths, how do you design and how do you tweak the design to deal with those? It, it, all, um, it all really adds up. And we've got a team of about five people now who have that direct experience in the engineering team alone, combined with more in the operations team and all of the other parts of the organization. It really gives us the, the tools to, to take the design further. And Ian, what is your sick obsession with bolts? They are just an important part of the design. They literally hold things together. Explain, explain to Hank what we're talking about here. Like what, what like so Dan, magazine and everything. Dan like, spent a lot of time with me during the, the build of the, uh, the 002 in Clang. And uh, my job was to make sure that the interceptor was put up correctly. Everything was tightened. Everything was ready to go in the water. This happened to involve a lot of bolts. So I talked a lot about them. I talked to Dan a lot about them. He didn't want to know about it. I kept talking. I uh, introduced him to the Bolted uh, Connections Monthly Magazine, which is a, is a, is a nice... It's a uh, must read. A it's nice a real magazine. Yeah. I hear that Dan's actually a subscriber of this magazine now. I don't know how that may have happened, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I just, uh, it was mainly just to wind Dan up during the build. Well, you would have loved our first system, Wilson. We actually had uh, every meter, we had about three big bolts connecting the screen with the brackets. And the guys at the yard, they, 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 were, they were complaining their, their heads off about it, but you would have had a, Yeah, yeah maybe you would have had a field day. Yeah. So when I said that we had 800 bolts, next system's gonna have at least 2,000. Wow. That's not true. That's a lie. Because <laughs> you said you want to make it easier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. easier, more enjoyable, same thing, really. And Hank, you, you've spent a lot of time on, on the ocean cleanup yards as well. I think it's the first time I met you was out in Alameda. For sure, yeah. And uh, you seem to be there for the builds. You take part in the events, and then you wave goodbye to the systems. <laughs> how does my thing? <laughs> how does this work out? Like, is this, yeah. is this your thing? Or do you have this? Do you have the desire to go out? You said you wanted to go out on one. Yeah. Well, I, I think I, I always tend to look at the project also where, where can you add value? And we, we've had two projects up to now where the engineers have been very busy on, on the design, the ops team have very been busy preparing the operations. And I often feel that, uh, well, definitely in those two cases, it added value for me to be at the end there, to really make sure you tie those remaining ends together, not, not physically, but uh, you know, uh, I call it uh, in, in discussion and, and debate, but also that you're there to make decisions that need to be made because that launch date with the boat is there fixed. So, so that was the case for these two, two, two moments in time. And I don't think, and that also adds that I can, my, my role is necessarily adding the most value out there. I, I've done that in the past. Before I joined the Ocean Cleanup, I worked at a few companies which went offshore quite a bit for construction. So I've gained that knowledge and I can use that now. But I think it's much better often either for engineers to go out there to, like Ian said it, to see the thing real life, to get that, you know, real life feedback as well, that you actually see what's happening and you can take that into the next design. Or folks that are really, you know, specialized in how to get the instrumentation working, the data process, that type of stuff. I think I, I would be motivating and maybe entertaining out there, but I don't, don't think that's what they need. But being on Alameda and then being at Campbell River, yeah. what was the difference that you saw between the two? Um, 
so, so when we came to Alameda, this was uh, with Wilson, we, we took a big step. I think we all realized that we built a system which was, uh, you know, large in size by itself, but it also was outfitted with all the equipment because we really built up to that moment with the belief that this would be the one that, that worked, understanding that things were still uh, unknown at the time. So you saw there that the, the, the whole operation by itself was quite big. You know, it took us uh, a few months to build that thing all together. It was quite complex, definitely feedback we got and implemented uh, for future improvement. Um, so, so Alameda was quite robust in size. And, and if you then looked at also the way we were launching the system, it was also with a lot of attention to what we're trying to achieve. So there was a huge buildup and a huge momentum towards that. So we got the learnings from Wilson back and then said, okay, we're on the right track. We just need to make some small improvements uh, and get out there again. So how can we do that as quick as possible? So then the idea was born, let's simplify the system. And therefore we can not only uh, you know, engineer it quicker, uh, procure it faster and also build it swifter, but then we can also get out there as soon as possible to make sure we get that feedback in the window we had. So when we then looked at Campbell River, the construction there took a week. Um, so it was just, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a string of pipe uh, welded together with some mild instrumentation on top of that. And then we launched it and decided that if we take the modular approach by installing the thing offshore, we can actually also tweak it offshore. And, and Wilson did not have that feature. So that was an important learning we put into Campbell River. So Campbell River was really when we were waving off the system, it was me and the other engineer, uh, Bart, we were, were standing there, okay, bye. And <laughs> there's no fireworks, there were no cameras, that was it. So it was definitely two extremes there, but uh, yeah, nonetheless, if you look at what we achieved in 1B in such a short uh, time, so system 1B, and how efficiently it went in Campbell River, that was, that was definitely great to see. Um, yeah, I, I, a story that comes to mind, I remember coming to Campbell River and that we were there with, uh, they had about five local guys at the yard and they were all driving these zoom booms, they call them, which are like these forklift trucks. Uh, and, and the scene was just similar to Alameda, it was almost surreal. Huh? So it was this old abandoned pulp factory, so it looked almost like a movie-ish uh, uh, thing. So we, we were there and I remember arriving and there was uh, a lot going on and I was kind of like, well, who, uh, how does it work now? Who leads it? Because the engineer arrived earlier and he, he was managing it. And he said, well, there's this guy, uh, he's called Jason. And he, he leads the stuff, but he's pretty intense. We call him the Tasmanian devil, they said. I said, okay, well, uh, let's see. <laughs> but then immediately this Jason walks in and he's like, okay, we need to pick up the zoom boom. We need to do this and that. Bart, you stand over there. Hank, you do this. And I haven't really met the guy. He says, okay, stand there, go this. Okay, here we go. And off he was. So I thought, man, this Tasmanian devil, he really gets the show running there. But you see with the type of work we were doing then and then the fast track nature we were following that those people really made the difference to the project. Like hands-on thinking with us and really with the, 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 the mindset that we want this to happen. And yeah, that, that was great to see. Also in Alameda, actually. Which, which one do you think, I'm curious, this is probably just my own curiosity, but does, does having the big event attached to, like we do big events here, like we... <laughs> we tend to do. We tend to have these major like little parties that happen. Does that add pressure or excitement, do you think? Uh, uh, both, let's, let's put it diplomatically. Well, I, I think if we looked at, at Wilson, we, we had the challenge internally that, that we knew uh, we needed to fix a date for this launch because there's preparation needed uh, towards that. Also with getting all the partners there, making sure everything's arranged. But there was also the part where we were in the project where we couldn't exactly say, okay, it's a date. 
and, and I'm also used to an industry where we talk in windows. So you have the opportunity to say, okay, I'm going to launch in say three weeks time and I'm going to narrow it as I get closer because then we have the date there. And within the ocean cleanup, we were saying, kind of saying, okay, let's, let's give me a date. I was like, okay, well, all right. So we fixed the date and, and everything was looking smooth then. But as you see with projects, which are pretty novel, you can run into surprises. So, so we had a few leading up to that and, and we made it in the end, but it was definitely a ramp up at the end, which, which put quite some pressure on, on all of us. Um, but again, if you manage that as a team, you get there in the end, there's also that part of the celebration, which is twice as good. So I think when this Wilson was launched, it was towed out there. There was, there was a great celebration afterwards of what we achieved. Um, so, so it comes a bit with both, I guess. But, uh, and of course, the river event was something as well. How did you feel leading up to the river event? Do you think that there was a lot of pressure that came on? Yeah, it was definitely a date that uh, drove a lot of excitement in the team and, uh, in, in positive and negative ways of like pressure and, oh, this is a great thing to be involved in. And I was actually out in Malaysia dealing with some of the issues that I think uh, the Ocean team also had, like leading up to this event, we wanted to make sure this is all working and up and running by the time we launch it to the world. Um, but the, what this meant was I came back to um, uh, Rotterdam uh, one week before the event and everyone had been working super hard here to get the event up and running. There is an insane amount of stuff involved and that's not even just the ducks. And um, so everyone has had their own job in their own world running around. And I was like, hey guys, I'm, I'm back. Can I, can I help out? And uh, all, of the, all of the high profile jobs had gone. The ducks are, are, are sorted. The uh, creating a fake current, someone else is working on that. The overall uh, organization is insane. So I was given, the, I think, the, the bottom job of the, the bunch, which was to fill the dumpsters with the, uh, the rented plastic balls for the ball pits. And uh, it was a fun three days. I got to play around in ball pit balls, sit in dumpsters. I had a lot of fun. So, and then the actual event itself was a really good celebration of all the work that the team had done over the past months. And I think everyone was really pleased to finally be able to talk about the, uh, the interceptor to the world. I noticed that during the river event, people, people uh, well, I joined the Ocean Clean about two and a half years, but they're always talking about the big event they had uh, back in May. Uh, I don't, don't know the year. The May 11th, the next event. The next event. And they all said, you know, the thing that happens with a big event, you just, uh, you're told what to do and everybody does it together and will work in the end. And I, I experienced that with the river event. It was quite cool. Like, I, I noticed you guys handling the ducks and all that stuff. I was appointed security agent, so I got this ear, uh, which was probably the I coolest thing I've worn. Yeah, <laughs> that's the, I think the biggest regret I have is not getting a job that got an earpiece. Yeah. And, uh, an earpiece and talking into the sleeve. Uh, like next time, next time. Yeah. But it's great to see that whole buzz going on. Eh? So everybody's working on it, regardless whose project it is or whatever. It's everybody's in there. One is standing behind the, the, the merchandise area, the other is leading the museum. So no, it was, it was, uh, the river event was great there. Yeah, and it was really good as well, like uh, the, the ocean team com coming along and showing their support to the river team as well, because we, we've kind of been supporting your big events and then you come on and you support us in our events. So that was also a really nice uh, feature of the event. And Hank, you were also at the, another event which happened in Vank. You, you were like the event guy. You should start like a, a wedding planning like uh, company. If this, if this whole ocean cleanup thing ever goes south, there you go. Event, event planning event by planning. Hank Van Dahlen. I think um, I'll die a young age, but uh, <laughs> it'd be a but, way to go. But you were, at, you were in a rainy uh, day in Vancouver. Oh yeah, that one, yeah. What, how cool was that to come together? And, and what is the importance of that event to everything we're all doing? 
Yeah. So so Vancouver event was 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 it was almost the 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 the. the how do you say the cherry on the cake you could say so we we've been out there we've been doing all this hard work and we have a system which is actually performing uh you know capturing the plastic holding it and it's coming to shore and i was actually in vancouver coincidentally then i, I was asked to uh, not only visit a few suppliers there for for future operations we're looking at but also to be at a conference there so uh the, the date was shifting left around i was kind of hoping it would fall in that window i was there so i, I was lucky on that one but then when we were there and you see the whole operation, uh, so I actually waved the system goodbye, you could say, in Campbell River and the boat left. Uh, but then the boat came back and the container was offloaded. And then you're there and it, it was, was a, bit, a bit of a weird feeling because normally you expect big events, sun's out, everybody's cheering. But this was dark, rainy, cold. So it was, it was a bit different than when we left. But the first time you open the container and you really for, you see it firsthand, what they're actually getting out of the ocean there and, and the, the size of it. And then you, all the bigs bags are put out. Then you're really like, wow, this is, this is, I, we, we talk about the problem. I, I speak to the engineers. I haven't been offshore firsthand in the patch. But when you see that plastic come back and you realize that this is only a fraction of what we still have to clean. Yeah, that hits home uh, hard then. But it's also very good to see that just taking this out is, is a good act. And we're on, the, on a good way there. And that definitely gives a lot of motivation to, to keep going along this, uh, this path we're taking. And it was a good transition going into what you're working on right now. Give us like a little, give us just a sneak peek. <laughs> a sneak peek of what we're doing. Um, so uh, with, with the Ocean team, uh, we're now in the development of the second generation of systems. So uh, the, the focus really is on using all the knowledge we have, yet improving that to make sure we capture more, hold it longer, and also make sure the system's out there a longer period of time. Uh, so the one thing that we really also are looking at at the moment is, is the operational model that comes with that. Because in the end, if you just look at the technical aspect of getting plastic out, you're far away from shore. Uh, so you could be ideally catching a lot of plastic, but then you still have that logistical challenge of getting it to shore. And if you look at the scale-up ambitions, it, it's very much about that operational model. How do you get systems out there? How do you get plastic to shore? So one thing that has a big focus now is we, we, we want to capture more plastic, but we also want to retain it longer. And then you get into the equation where you have to think about the footprint of your system. So if you just think in a horizontal plane, there's so much plastic you can hold in the system. But if you maybe think vertically, there, there may be options there that you can actually hold plastic and more plastic for a longer period of time. So that is something that is kind of top of the agenda at the moment. And uh, yeah, we're on a good way, I would say. Hank, I want to go back a little bit to you, like being like your energy and, and like how you put that out to your team, both in the office, but, but also in the, in the field. Like how important do you think that that is to a team when they're doing something as big as building in like Campbell River or Alameda or even just being in a meeting here in, in Rotterdam? Um. But what I see is, I, I think definitely within the ocean cleanup, there's so much motivation. It's almost just funneling it in the right direction. Uh, and, and, and I often see that uh, um, the challenges we're trying to overcome are, are pretty big at times. Eh? Like, like we have had big setbacks. We've had a system offshore which we didn't perform as we wanted. We had it to, to address that, but also build a new one. So you're almost doing two big projects in parallel. And what you see then with a team which is so passionate about what they do, but you know you see things that don't go so well and, and, and things you would like to see differently, yet you feel so committed that you also put the burden on your own shoulders. 
it is really making uh, that part. I, I, I think it's important that we, we, like I said, funnel it in the right direction, but also don't don't make the problem too big as it is. Eh? Like like uh, yes, we're trying to address a problem which is immense and, and it affects the world, and we'd rather clean it today than than say in a year's time. Uh, but making sure that, that we have that correct energy and fun in our work, because we're all clever, I have no doubt about how clever they are, uh, and, 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 but it's making that combination with having fun, getting the right energy level, and then I feel you see that, that all funnel into great solutions, but also people that really not only are passionate about what they do, but they really they, they, they find a, a purpose in it as well. They really they have fun in doing it, and, and it, therefore it also becomes a bit like, work uh, hobbyish, you know, it's not like you say I clock in at nine and I have to do this, but I'm actually looking forward to getting back to the office, getting back into that energy and together trying to find a solution here. So, And I hear from our other camera guy that you're using music a lot to inspire. Oh, is that so? Yes. <laughs> there is some music floating around. Tell me about some of the tracks you're using and why. Um, so <laughs> there's always a uh, uh, music I like is, is upbeat. And, and, and it needs to give some energy and, and uh, we've been talking a little bit about as well if I go back to my uh, uh, teenage uh, period then there was definitely rap music which I found was great you know there's a lot of energy and, and, and flow around it so um, if you look also at the Wu-Tang Clan just to name it by its name that that, that music gives you so much energy that, that that's great to do. So you, you grew up with rap music what rap music did you listen to as a little Dutch Hank Van Dalen? As a little Dutch rapper. Um, so so uh, I, it all started with, with I think, uh, skateboarding. So I got into that during my, my teenage years and skateboarding quickly evolved into surfing. Uh, but definitely during the skateboarding, uh, skateboarding time, there, were, there was a kind of this vibe going on about, about underground rap music. And in Holland, you had something called the Ostor Posse. And it's, uh, it's bigger than Wu-Tang Clan, it's, just, it's, a, bit, it's, a, bit, it's a bit more Dutch. Um, but, but they were actually from the streets of Amsterdam, they were, and they were rapping about all types of stuff. But they had one main rapper called Def P, and he was quite funny in his lyrics and doing all this stuff. But then you actually realize outside of Holland there's even more, so then you start to open that bag of, 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 of opportunities there. And then the Wu-Tang Clan, I think, kind of came out, they had that, that, that first CD, Protect Your Neck. And I remember being in a skate store, actually a vivid memory, and that skate store was so dark that you, when you bought something there and you went outside, you only realized what color it was that you bought something. So I one time bought, I bought blue shoes, but then I walked out and I was like, holy shit, it's actually green. And that's how dark it was in there. But they also had this small CD booth where you could kind of just check out some new music. So every once in a while you had a bit of money left. And then I picked up this Wu-Tang CD with, from Protect Your Neck, and that was, that was life-changing, you know, what is it, 10 guys really full energy giving it their all and yeah cool man Ian do you have anything like that growing up in uh, England no everyone was just uh, listening to classical music watching addresses of the Queen on TV and drinking tea it was pretty uh, standard childhood so it's exactly as everyone else yeah, in the world pictures pretty it. much yeah <laughs> What inspired you growing up? What was your thing? What, what was inspired like me? I don't know. This, the, I guess the equivalent of uh, Hank's story growing up was, uh, in terms of music, was uh, I was the kind of uh, pretentious music liker who decided that, okay, I'm going to be in a rock band. I'm going to play uh, bass guitar with, with my friends. And um, the only real like rock music is in the past. And then I really, I was that annoying, pretentious kid who de denied that music was good. And then when I turned 18, I was like, what an idiot. And then that opened up a world of music to me. So now I'll basically listen to, listen to anything, enjoy anything. I get some complaints from people that 
I feel my music is the opposite of Hank's. Bleak, depressing, <laughs> turn it off. Well, why do you listen to this? Are kind of common things associated with my music choices, but they, they, they inspire me in my own way. So long story short, it's uh, S Club 7. It's the, okay. yeah. Hank, in your time here, what has been the highlight for you? The highlight, uh, there have been many, and it, it, it seems almost like a continuous one. Eh? So uh, it, it's, I always say it's difficult to, to find one. Um, one that pops to mind was we were at Campbell River. We had the whole system ready to deploy, um, but then the weather picked up, so we decided to wait for the next day, but we really gave it our all. And we were sitting there in this big warehouse in the middle of nowhere, basically, and there was actually reindeers walking around a bit as well, because Canada, of course, being a bit wild as it is. So, so they were walking past. Uh, early on the day, we saw a raccoon, uh, which did eat up the lunch of one of the guys at the yard. So he wasn't too happy, but I thought it was pretty cool to see. But I remember sitting there pretty, pretty worn out about the whole thing. But you had the view of the pipe uh, uh, close to the water. There was this beautiful backdrop of, of you know, uh, pine trees and then hilly surroundings. And then you thought, man, this is, this is actually why we're doing it as well. It's, it's all this hard work we're putting in, but also being in an area where you see how volatile nature and how fragile it can also be. It gave a kind of sense of uh, rewarding feeling then, that you just sit there and you go, you know, put a lot of hard work in, and, but, but it feels good, you know, it's for the right reasons. So. Highlights for you? I think a highlight at least a crazy situation that never leaves my mind is when we did the, uh, the installation day of the uh, 002 in Malaysia. We, uh, we transported the, uh, the interceptor that we'd spent many weeks building and there was lots of challenges associated with that. And then, but the reflection on the sort of nature surrounding the problem is also really interesting. And we took this boat trip from the yard where we built the Interceptor 002 to the installation site probably 20 times. And it's this river in Malaysia that has this amazing turns and you can just see the, the what used to be there before all of the plastic pollution was incredible. You've got these, a lot of wildlife, even with the situation it is. You've got monkeys jumping around, there's these crazy lizards swimming about. We transported up the river and there was a bit of a kind of uh, controlled but chaotic atmosphere around. We had lots of different boats going all over the place. The operation itself went very smoothly and we were really, we were really pleased with it. But there was um, the, the sense of what we'd actually done then when we ended the day with this interceptor in the water in the middle of a city in Malaysia was a really, uh, a really good experience that so will stay with me. How do you feel like the future is going? I think the, the key thing is to keep uh, developing the technology, keep learning why stuff is passing the system, how do we get more out of the water, how do we make it more efficient, more cost effective, uh, and I think the, the team has that knowledge to be able to push the technology further. And Hank, same, same question, how do you think the future looks for the ocean side of this? Um, so, so for us, um, we are at the, the, the verge of something big. So, so we, we've gotten, uh, call it that, you know, the belief that what we're pursuing is possible. So that was generation one. Now with generation two, we're scaling up the technology. After that comes the scale up of the whole thing. So this really is, is a point where we are getting to even bigger stuff. And uh, the fact that we are progressing as we are at the moment doesn't mean we're there yet, but we're definitely having that momentum. Um, shows that we're on the right track. So I have, I have confidence that, that where we are heading is, is in the right direction. 
And to achieve what we want, and we definitely want to achieve those clean oceans, it, it's going to get bigger. And we need to put our full effort in to, to get there. But the fact that we're going to clean those oceans, I'm very confident about Well, thanks both of you for catching up with us. <laughs> what a name. Thanks for uh, catching up with us as well. Yeah, good luck in the coming months, getting back to normal and getting things going again. And to everyone listening at home and watching us, thank you guys for your support. And please keep sending us questions and watching this show and doing everything you guys do for us. We really appreciate it because we couldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't for you guys. So thank you. This is a lot of fun, by the way. Thank oh. you for that. Yeah, thank you. We got plenty, so good. enjoy your day. Good luck getting back to yeah. it, and yeah, good stuff. <laughs>